welcome um, everybody uh, to today's event. Uh, it's a great uh, pleasure and honor for me uh, to be uh, chairing today's event. I'm Caroline Howarth from the Department of Social Psychology uh, with a keen interest in uh, issues relating to multiculturalism. So uh, it's great to be here and to be able to introduce uh, Professor Hazel Marcus um, to give what is the last in a series of events that is celebrating 50 years of social psychology at the LSE, as well as thinking about the next 50 years of social psychology at the LSE, thinking forwards as well as um, thinking about um, the history of the discipline here. Uh, the department was established around 50 years ago by Professor Hilda Himmelweit, um, who um, had a keen interest in developing a societal, societal psychology, a version of psychology that really focused on the ways in which society shapes psychological processes. Society in terms of organizations, the media, education, culture generally, how this shapes thought, behavior, interactions, how we work together, why conflicts develop, and so forth. So Hilda would have had a great deal in common with Hazel Marcus, as in a, similarly, uh, Hazel's research examines how cultures, including those of national cultures, gender, race, religion, ethnicity, class, occupation, shape, thought, behavior, feelings, action, and so forth. So that interplay between society and psychological processes um, connects the vision that we have as a department um, to the approach of Hazel Marcus. Uh, Hazel has directed various different uh, research projects and res research centers that have been widely um, acknowledged for contributing to uh, producing a, a useful um, social psychology that contributes to understanding problems of today. She's director of Stanford's um, Center uh, for Comparative Studies in Race and Ethnicity and is co-director of uh, Stanford Center for Psychological Answers to Real-World Questions, which is described very nicely, I think, as a do-tank rather than a think-tank think tank with a mission to create and share psychological insights with people working to improve society. Hazel uh, has been awarded various different awards uh, for, the, for her work, such as the American Psychological Association's Award for um, Distinguished Scientific Contributions, the Donald Campbell Award for um, Contributions to Social Psychology, and the William James Award for Lifetime Achievements for Research, and the list uh, goes on and on. Um, her publications list is uh, incredibly impressive and uh, overwhelming, really, and includes uh, the text uh, Clash, How to Thrive in a Multicultural World uh, with her colleague Ilana Connor. And we will be uh, hearing um, uh, about that today. Um, Hazel will uh, talk for around uh, 50 minutes 
And we are also really delighted to have two discussants uh, with us today. Uh, Jennifer Sheehy-Skevington from the Department of Social Psychology, who has a keen interest in issues around power and intergroup relations, and also uh, Professor Chandran Kuthathas, who's chair of political theory and the head of the government uh, department. Uh, they will b- both speak briefly to open up the discussion, make some comments, ask some questions, and then we shall open things up to the floor. So thanks very much in advance to both of you, and uh, particular to uh, Hazel Marcus uh, for today's lecture. Thank you, Caroline, for that nice introduction. Um, I, I didn't realize I've had a wonderful day here today um, with, with, with students and faculty at a terrific um, exhibition in Carolyn Howler's um, uh, shop. Some of her postgraduate students have a um, wonderful exhibition on race. And I didn't realize until right now the through line. I was a um, graduate student when Hilda Himmelweit came to Ann Arbor, Michigan, and I remember being assigned to take her around, and she was such a formidable presence. And she was extremely elegant, but she was just, it, it was a terrifying time, but I, but I, I didn't realize that, um, this, this connection. She made a big impression on me. Um, sorry about my voice. I, when I left on the plane, I didn't have it, but that's how I sound now. I, I'm delighted to be here today. I want to talk uh, about uh, work from, from a recent book, and I want to talk about how to um, thrive in the multicultural world. Of course, there's many ways to do this, many ways not to do it as well, but I want to leave you with just two possible tools that I think will be helpful. One is the, um, the difference between independence and interdependence, two different ways to to be a self, two social construals of the self. And the other one is the idea, what we call of a a culture cycle, which is basically a a sociocultural view of psychology, one that takes the context into very serious account and the idea that we we have to think that way to understand um, behavior. But before I get started on that, I, I want to just give you a um, brief little quiz. Okay, here's your first question. Let me see if I can make this go. No, that was all not. It should go. Hmm. Let's see. It was so nice when we checked it out here before. Let me try this way. Okay, got that. Okay, your house is on fire. I'm sorry, but. Inside, your your mother is asleep in one bedroom, and your spouse is asleep in the other bedroom. You have time to only rescue one of them. That's all you can do. So your question, the quiz is, whom would you save? Okay, think about it for a minute. It's a big, it's a big decision. Let me see a show of hands for those of you who would save your mother. Your mother. Okay, what does that what does that look like? About half. Okay, keep, keep your hands up high. It's not an embarrassment. There's no right answer. It's a, both. My, the point of my talk is both answers are right. Okay. Okay. Hands down. Okay. Let me see those of you who would save a spouse. I know a lot of you don't have a spouse yet. Oh, it's really. It's this is a this is a very multicultural group. So I'd say looking at looks about half and half. Okay. Um, let's try. Let me try one more 
quiz for you. Suppose I give you a choice of five beautiful pens. They write beautifully. Um, they're expensive pens. Um, four are of one color and one is of another color. You can only choose one. Okay, let me see a show of hands of those of you that would choose an orange pen. Orange pen. That looks to me to be about a third of the audience here. Okay, how many of you would choose the lovely, unique green pen? <laughs> most of you, most of you. Okay, all right. Okay, all right, well, hold that in your mind and we'll, we'll get back to that in a minute. Um, I want to talk about uh, uh, where the, a lot of the ideas and inspiration for the work that I'm going to talk about today has come from, and it's come, as I think it does from, for many of us, has come from students. And I um, have the opportunity at Stanford to uh, teach in a, in a very um, diverse university environment um, like your own. It's very diverse at the undergraduate level, less so at the graduate level. But in a graduate seminar that I was teaching, I had a student, Hee Jung Kim from Seoul, South Korea, and she came to the class, and in the seminar, I would expect all of my students to contribute. And I tried calling on her. She would just stare at her hands on the desk. I would tell her, well, next week I'm going to call on you, sort of warm calling. I would tell her I would call on her. I would call on her. She still wouldn't answer. Um, a little bit later in our, our quarter, I looked at the signature line on her email, and it said... The empty carriage rattles the loudest. This was Hee-jung's way of telling me, and she did this through um, a very common Korean proverb that in her East Asian context, thinking and talking were not the same thing. And just because she wasn't talking, I shouldn't think that she was not thinking. And she was, she was um, in, indeed thinking she was absorbing the information. And I shouldn't accuse her, as many of my colleagues um, do, some of the Asian students, of just being freeloaders in the class, just coming to sit there, take, 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 and not contributing their ideas. As I got to know Hee-jung more over the term, I found out that she grew up in Korea, in classrooms that looked a lot like these. This is a classroom where students are encouraged to sit calmly, they're supposed to have quiet minds, pay close attention to the authority, to the teachers, to the sage on the stage. The whole idea is to, to be receptive, to adjust their thinking to what the um, professors or instructors are saying, and to um, try to uh, absorb as much as possible. Now. At the same time, there are a variety of other students in this same um, seminar, a lot of students with European um, uh, backgrounds that had grown up in um, very different uh, environments altogether. Um, in Hee-jung's environment, she learned a different than what we say in the West, which is the squeaky wheel gets the grease. Hee-jung learned the duck that quacks the loudest gets shot. And throughout, reflected throughout East Asian cultural context, a lot of Asian cultural context, is this idea that standing out, calling attention to yourself, um, 
uh, making a big deal about yourself, it can put you in a position in which you are vulnerable, in which you are pulled apart from others. That may not always be the best place to be. Uh, in Australia on the Pacific Rim, they often say the tall poppy gets sheared off. In Japan, it's often said that the nail that stands out gets pounded down. It's the idea that being distinctive, um, it, it can sometimes um, be a problem. Now, um, he Jung learned as um, an American graduate student that in many middle-class American contexts, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. Uh, she, she learned that this was the normatively appropriate way to be, but the whole idea sort of irritated her that there was one right way to be, um, one American right way to be, and she went on to do a brilliant dissertation uh, that was published in a, a variety of um, uh, journal articles showing that it is indeed the case that while for European Americans, people in European American context, that talking and thinking often go together. Thinking produces good talking, and good talking helps clarify thinking, and vice versa. That in the Korean context, for students, even for students who had grown up speaking English but came from Korean family backgrounds, that was their, um, their, their heritage of origin, talking and thinking get in each other's way. And in fact, students, when they were asked to talk out loud, uh, Korean students and Korean American students actually perform much less well than when they talked in, uh, when they worked on problems in silence. For the Americans, this was the opposite. Actually, talking out loud helped their thinking. So this is the story of, of Hee Jung Kim from Korea. In the same uh, uh, seminar I was, um, that I was describing, um, there was a student named Elena Connor. Now, Elena Connor came from another uh, place, uh, different from uh, Stanford University. She came from the south of the United States. Um, she came from Memphis, Tennessee. Most people know Memphis, Tennessee is the land of Elvis Presley. She grew up um, in a working class community there. Uh, she had a, um, her uh, mom was a single mom. And she never left the South until a teacher encouraged her to apply for a scholarship, and she was admitted to Yale University, and she went, left Memphis for the first time to go up north to the land of the, of the Yankees, and she was amazed when, when she got there what she found. Before she left, her grandmother gave her a um, sign that said this. She said maybe she should hang this in her dorm room, a little bit of Southern wisdom. Better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to speak out and remove all doubt. Um, her grandmother was, was, was well aware of, of the stereotype of, of Southerners that um, in the U.S. that they could be a little bit slow, a little bit backward. Her grandmother didn't want her to confirm that stereotype before she understood what was the right way to comport herself in the, in the um, New Haven, Connecticut, Yale environment. And her grandmother was, was um, doing her a favor here by telling her to just um, sit there. Elena was amazed. She was the only student who was in silence. All the other students from the northeast of the U.S. seemed to have no, um, they didn't need to be silent. They had no end of ideas, um, no end of um, uh, uh, 
suggestions to make in the class, and it took her um, a long time until she came to graduate school to um, become a more um, a more uh, 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 independent self. Now, these are two very different students. They happen to be in the in the same um, seminar. What did they have in common? When somebody from Memphis, Tennessee, in the south of the United States, and someone from Seoul, South Korea. And what I want to suggest is what they had in common is that both of them were using what um, we've called an interdependent self. Okay, and in the diagram you can see here, this is the uh, an abstraction of what we're talking about as an interdependent control of the self. First, all selves are are social, any kind of self. Um, in this self, the red circle is is the individual. And then the circles all around are, are others, close others. But you can see that the boundary between the individual and the close others is, is porous and overlapping. Um, another feature of this interdependent self is the boundary between one's own group and, and other groups. When we're um, thinking about ourselves in this interdependent way, um, we're not thinking about being interdependent with just anyone that's out there, but with um, particular, particular groups. Now, all of us can appreciate an interdependent self. All of us have one. We have to, to get through the day, to get through our lives. The independent self is the is our way of thinking about the self in which we're putting relationships first. We want to be similar to others, fit in with others. We're seeking to, to adjust our behavior to others. And we're aware of being rooted in, in tradition, in history, and place. Now, this is the self that Hee-jung was, was using, the one that she was most familiar with, she had the most practice with. It was also the one that Elena had the most practice with when she, when she first came to Yale. But the one that I wanted her to use, Elena, and I wanted Hee-jung to use too, was this self. This is the independent self. And you can see here that um, this is a, oh, you don't see it, sorry. I have to do it this way, you'll see it here in a sec. Okay, this is your, um, independent self, and it's similar in, in uh, some respects. There's the blue circle in the middle, that's the, the individual, the white circles around are the people close to you. And as you can see, these other people are still important. Selves are always social. There's always a dialogical relationship between selves and others, but between the individual and others when we're talking about the self. But the boundaries in this case are solid and they're non-overlapping. And the independent self is the self in which, when you're using this one, you're concerned about being individual, about being somewhat unique, rather than similar to others, about influencing, making a difference with, on others, influencing others, influencing the world, rather than adjusting, and very concerned often with being relatively free from the influence of other people and free from the, the effects of history, um, tradition. Um, and, uh, and other people. And once again, we all have both of these selves. Um, both of these are viable selves, good selves, good ways to be. For most of us, probably one of these selves is relatively more elaborated or uh, developed than the other. There's, but depending on which one of these selves is mediating behavior at the moment is is driving your behavior at the moment or, or regulating it, uh, 
your behavior at the moment, many aspects of behavior will be different. And it, it takes me a long time to draw those out. So what I'm going to do instead is show you two cultural products. They are two advertisements for um, fuel-efficient cars, recent ads. One's for Cadillac and one's for Chevy. And I'll just let them roll out, and it'll just give you some, um, some quick differences between these, these two types of, of selves. Let me play this one here. First one is uh, for Cadillac. Why do we work so hard? It's okay to laugh. This is um, Nespa. I, I mean, you you have to believe that anything is possible. You work hard. You create your own luck, and that's how you get the you get all the stuff. It's a you know it's a um, well entrenched uh, American um, way of being. Here's an individual. He is surrounded by others. He has family. You see the nature of his relationships. I mean, he is a social self too, but it's the nature of the relationships that differ. Let me, let me show you another one now to draw the contrast quickly. We're not supermodels. I think it's easy to appreciate that sentiment as well. The people who need people. You know, the luckiest people, the richest, the richest guys on worth. Both of these are are um, well-known understandings of the self. We, we need um, both of them. Um, most of us have both of these understandings of the self and use them. What I want to submit is that in our science, what we understand best is the independent way of being a person. That's the one that our, that our social sciences are built on. We have much less full understanding of an interdependent way of being, and I think that's one uh, 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 something we can do something about, and which will uh, definitely increase our understanding and foster intercultural understanding and uh, uh, per perhaps reduce conflict. Because when independence and interdependence come into contact without the realization of the nature of the differences between these two ways of being, conflict definitely can ensue. And that's what we uh, uh, draw out in our, in our book called Clash. And what we do in this book is talk about eight major cultural clashes. And we picked these eight because these were eight that there was sufficient social science research, we pulled together studies from psychology, sociology, political science, economics, education, to make the case that um, for these eight cultural clashes, and you can see what they are going down the rows here, what I want you to notice is that um, on the left-hand side, these cultural contexts, the context of the West, those of men, of, of white people, people in middle-class contexts, in the U.S. we focused on East and West Coast, um, religious differences, workplace differences, uh, finally a, a, a difference between the global North and the global South. On the left-hand side, those cultural contexts tend to foster an independent way of being. And when you move over to the right-hand side, the other side of those cultural conflicts, those, those contexts tend to foster 
a more interdependent way of being. Now, I'm not making the claim that the interdependence of of the East, the interdependence of Hee Jung Kim is exactly like the interdependence of Elena Connor from Memphis, Tennessee, but they do have some features in common. One um, particularly important aspect of this is that the contexts on the left in blue tend to be the contexts that are the more powerful contexts. The people in the, the context of the left, that's where the power resides. On the right-hand side, those tend to be the ones in the, on the right. Those tend to be the more interdependent contexts, those contexts where people um, are often required because of their positionality to be more concerned with adjusting, with fitting in, are more aware of being rooted in history, place, and tradition, um, are more aware of hierarchy. And of course, any given person, you could place yourself on this yourself. This is an American-rooted chart, but you could place yourself on it and see that all of us are, are fairly multicultural. We have a mix um, of uh, emphases in, in, in our own self. And there may be some people in audience that would be very much independent, mostly independent. There may be some that will be more towards interdependent, and probably a lot of the people in this very diverse environment would see themselves as kind of a mix between the two having both a awareness of independence and interdependence. And actually, from my perspective, that's a good thing because those are the people that are going to thrive in the multicultural world, the extent that they have awareness of these two ways of being. Um, my point is that social science at this point is, is still weird. Weird is the acronym that's used by um, Joe Henrich and colleagues for a social science that is Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. Um, that's um, contexts of the world like this uh, tend to support, foster, elaborate, institutionalize an independent way of being. It's good that we know about these weird contexts because those are important, powerful contexts that set models for the rest of the world. The point is that weird contexts are about, characterize about 15% of the world's population. 85% of the world is non-weird. And so basically what we've got is a, is a split between the weird world versus the majority world. So it's good for social science. We've got a lot to do. What we've done, I think, is right. We're pretty good on the world world, weird world. We've got that pretty well characterized. It's just that we've got a lot of work to do to understand the rest of the world, the majority world. And I think it comes down to a conflict that looks like this often, you know, in just very bold terms. The West says to the rest of the world, looking at them, you're lawless, corrupt, inefficient, and immoral. Let me fix you up. Pay attention. I'll fix you up. The rest of the world, the majority world, says, I don't know, to the West, you're selfish, disloyal, cold, and immoral. Is that really what, what I want? You know, this is a kind of underlying clash that's, that's going on because of our basic failure to understand um, some very different ways of being that characterize most of the world. And in our book, what we try to do is talk about how this clash of independence and interdependence drives a lot of conflict. We try to show how cultures foster relatively more independent ways of being or relatively more interdependent ways. And then we try to show how trying to resolve those tensions or leverage those tensions 
between independence and interdependence can both can increase productivity, uh, creativity, uh, can have a variety of good outcomes if we're clever about it. Now, I don't have to say in this audience that I might in some audiences that these differences I'm talking about on either sides of these clashes, you know, they're not biological, they're not inherent, they are, of course, cultural. Um, what I mean by culture, we use a very simple definition in our book just to get a quick handle on culture. We uh, define culture in terms of four eyes, ideas, institutions, and interactions that guide the thoughts, feelings, and actions of individuals. Why have we made this simple um, definition? Because what I find, and it may be d uh, different here in England, but in the U.S., when you say something is cultural, that gives people the license to just throw up their hands as if to say, oh, well, then there's nothing that could be done about it. You know, it's some big, vague problem that you can't do anything about it, and it's also not my fault, so I don't have to worry about it. So what we tried to do in, in giving uh, culture a very simple definition was to um, make the opposite point that culture, of course, is a product of our human agency. It could be different, and we can have a part of it. So we defined um, the four levels of culture of fitting together in a dynamic that we call the, um, the culture cycle. And the culture cycle, we've divided it up into these, these four elements. On the left-hand side here, starting, I guess starting here, are individual thoughts, feelings, and actions. This is typically where psychologists focus. Um, uh, often, and, I, and I'll you know, talk about American psychologists here without paying too much uh, uh, attention to the rest of the dynamic, but the second layer of the culture cycle includes daily interactions with social norms, with social networks, with all sorts of cultural artifacts like those ads I just showed you, all of these things which are both reflecting and at the same time fostering and shaping our thoughts, feelings, and actions. They're completely in a dynamic with our individual behavior. A third layer of the culture cycle is, of course, institutions, and institutions are critical. These are the entities that write down and formalize the rules of society. They include government, our economic institutions, our religion, our legal, educational, and scientific institutions. These institutions are make some interactions more possible while um, forbidding others. If we're going to understand individual behavior, we have to pay attention to institutional behavior. We, we can't separate them. And then finally, the last layer of the culture cycle is what we call ideas. They're sort of deep-seated, long-standing, um, but often unspoken ideas and narratives about what's good, right, and natural. What's the right way to be a person? What's the normatively good way? Um, it includes ideas are things like what it means to be a good person, what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, who belongs in college and who doesn't. These are things that usually don't come out of people's mouths, but nevertheless, these ideas are undergirding the rest of the, the culture cycle. And what I d d try to draw out with this um, simple formulation is, is two things. First of all, that culture is nothing but dynamic. It's constantly in cha changing. You change one element, the other elements change because they are fixed together in, in a cycle. And most importantly, that individuals are not separate from their cultures. They're part and parcel of their culture. So they can um, change these cultures. They can make changes in their patterns of interaction. They make changes in their institutions. They, they can indeed have a, a powerful impact um, on their culture and certainly in concert. Now, I just talked a little bit briefly in introducing uh, uh, this about East and West differences. I've done 
a lot of work uh, comparing the U.S. with Japan, comparing the U.S. with um, uh, with, uh, with China and with South Asia, but I want to just return to those quizzes I gave you. Um, but then I want to talk in more detail about two other uh, cultures that haven't been given as uh, much attention, and that's the difference between middle class and working class cultural context, and then the difference between white and uh, cultural context and cultural context of people of, of color, which is a broad enough generalization, but still not enough. We're only now bringing attention to it from a cultural perspective, and I want to take you through the culture cycle of both of those. But let me just go back to the East versus West. I think it's probably clear from what I was saying at the beginning that East Asian culture cycles emphasize interdependence. European-American culture cycles tend to emphasize interdependence. And so when I give you this question, um, and I'll show you the data um, from this, um, from a recent study, it's very clear that um, European-Americans in the red... Um, are much more likely to say they would save their spouse. Um, Taiwanese are much more likely to say they would save their mother in this kind of situation. This study is part of a five-series set of studies. It's been done with people of various ages to ensure that people actually have spouses. Um, the data are quite clear, and I think it reflects what we, what we saw here. Um, and, of course, I guess I should say that in, when you're dealing with um, European, uh, Asian-American culture cycles, you're dealing with culture cycles in which ideas about how to be a person include very important Confucian ideas, which start with the assumption that of all the virtues, the most important is filial piety and honoring one's parents. Why? Your parents gave you life. Your spouse, you could always get another spouse. <laughs> but you only have one mother. And the most, the most important thing that you do is to honor that connection, that set of obligations. It's an obvious thing when a Confucian ideas are underlying um, your behavior. Last year, um, last year in China, a law was passed that children had to visit their families on holidays because Chinese are getting a little too independent and going off and doing various things. And, in, uh, in search of um, you know a, a better life, so it's institutionalized that you have to pay attention to your mom. I think we have to think about that in the in the U.S. Um, this this um, exercise, if you look at the data here, what you can see is that in East Asian context, people prefer the pen, the common color pen, or the one that's in the majority. European-Americans by far prefer the unique, the distinctive um, pen. The pen that shows that you have freely chosen. You're not choosing, choosing like the others. You're choosing the different pen, the one that, that stands out, that allows you to be um, an independent self. And, of course, we can think of the way that the choice is... is um, uh, emphasized and elaborated and inscribed throughout the European-American way of life. Choice after God is probably the most sacred concept in the U.S. It doesn't matter how bad your choice set is, as long as you're choosing, you're expressing your preferences, your own preferences, you are um, doing the right thing. You're a normatively appropriate person, and that's why choosing the unique one sh um, reveals that you're doing that. 
Okay, but I'm not going to talk um, much more about um, that difference, um, east and west difference. Um, there's a lot of work on that. I want to now turn my attention to middle class versus working class as another cultural conflict. In the U.S., we are uh, still a working class nation. Um, I'm defining class through educational attainment. In the U.S., um, 70 percent of people have less than a four-year college degree. 30 percent have a, a college degree or more. Middle-class culture cycles tend to foster an independent way of being, and this is, as I'll show you, very much fostered through the university, the college experience. Working-class culture cycles tend to emphasize a more interdependent way of being, and I want to just go through a culture cycle um, analysis of that to, under, to underscore that. Um, starting at the ideas level here, um, what you'll see in working class context is a very strong set of ideas that more or less say that what's important is being part of a like-minded group, being part of a family, a team, a community. That's true for people everywhere. It's very much um, emphasized in, in working class context. In the middle class, once people um, start on a path towards a college education or if they have college-educated parents, the, the key to being a good person becomes achievement, individual achievement, individual accomplishment, um, individual success. This is a, 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 a big difference between the two. And then, of course, this is um, reflected in various ways in behavior. Um, in one set of studies, we've looked at extensively at self-descriptions of people in middle-class context, people in working-class context. Here's one description from a high school-educated man. He says, what matters to being a good person is endurance, not giving up, just being in there, sticking with your friends. When the going is not so good, hanging tough. So being loyal, sticking with the people that you are interdependent with that are part of your in-group, that's, that's the measure of being a good person. Here's a self-description from a college-educated woman which um, highlights what is, is very commonly seen in self-descriptions once people have a college education. She uses a lot of attributes, a lot of positive attributes to talk about herself. I think I have a lot of energy. I think I'm well-organized. I think I'm smart. I don't think I'm brilliant, but I think I learn quickly. Not very physically inclined. I think I'm kind of hot-headed and stubborn. So, you know, there's a little bit negative. It's not, it's not all positive. This is the American narrative. But what you see is once people move into middle-class context with a college education, they tend to start to develop a more independent self where the focus is on what's inside myself, who I am. And there's much less talk of other people in defining the self or in connections with other people. Because, of course, a middle-class way uh, environment supports being a more independent self. Let me give you another example from um, at the individual level of the culture cycle. If I, if you do a lot of research and you go out and you buy a new car, this is a very Palo Alto, California car to buy. It's a red Prius. And so you're happy with your car. And then you show it to your friend. Okay, And then you find out the next day that your friend went out and bought the exact same car, the exact same red Prius. How do you feel? Who feels bad? Who feels bad? 
Only a couple of you feel bad. Only three or four of you, five or six. Oh, a few. A few of you feel bad. Alex feels bad. That's good. I'm glad. So. People in middle-class context tend to feel bad. Here's one of our respondents. I'd be disappointed because I wanted to be unique. It spoils my fun and my point of differentiation. It's like picking the green pen. You want to, you want to be different. You want to stand out. You just want to be somewhat separated, not weird, but not like everyone else. People in working-class context say this kind of thing. I think it's cool. I'd be like, yeah, let's start a car club. <laughs> What would be what could be better than to be in a group and your friends would have the same sort of car and you know just to show you that I'm not cherry picking the data here working class um, uh, people in working class context say they wouldn't be bothered they would feel happy that people would have the same car as they okay let's move up a level to the interactions level what's going on in the culture cycle that is supporting these kinds of individual psychological responses what's happening some obvious things. Um, first of all, uh, people in um, working class context earn less money, they have fewer resources because of their level of education. In, um, it's uh, it's pr certainly true in the US. They rely more on family and friends, they move less. People start moving in the US when they go somewhere to go, co to, to, go to college, they move away from home. Those with working class, um, working class backgrounds tend to work jobs with less choice and control. They tend to teach their kids to fit in, to observe hierarchy, and to follow tradition. Parents everywhere want to do well by their kids, but they, if you're um, working class parents, you're preparing your children for environments in which you often have to follow the rules. And so it's important to fit in, know what's the right thing to do, put your head down and do it. Very often in working class context, people have fewer choices among fewer and less attractive options. So choice is less available or the choice set contains um, more bad alternatives. There's less experience um, with choice. There's less ways to stand out and be different because of fewer resources. Now, not everything about being on the left-hand side of that chart about being interdependent, which I alerted you to as the side with less power, has negative consequences. There's certainly some, some good consequences of interdependence, and this is, um, we um, drew those out in a study in which we gave people a variety of vignettes, people in working class context, people in middle class context, and asked them how they would solve these relational dilemmas. Here's an example. Stephen has an uncle who has become increasingly hot-headed at recent family events. He tends to drink too much and has clashed with Stephen on several occasions. A year ago, Stephen got engaged, and as his wedding day comes closer, he is unsure that he wants his uncle to come to the event. What should he do? Well, there are two very different answers to this. How many people think that Stephen should not invite his uncle? Raise your hands. Don't be embarrassed. There's no right answers. Okay, you, how many people think Stephen has to invite his uncle? Okay, very interdependent crowd. So here are, the, here are the different responses, and they were very clear. A typical working class response, family is family. Unfortunately, has to invite his uncle, but it would be good if he could have a conversation about his concerns with him. Stephen certainly doesn't want his uncle ruining the event, but if he doesn't invite him, there could be bad blood. But a very common middle class response was, he should not invite his uncle. People aren't important just because they're family. Move on. <laughs> this, is, this is an idea that becomes increasingly common with a sense of yourself as 
independent. You're in charge of yourself. It's, it's about you expressing your preferences. You want your wedding day to be the way you want it. You don't want it to be ruined by these you know, people with whom you are you know, connected in some way. And in fact, across 12 different vignettes, the idea that you should break off old relationships that are troubling and begin new ones was much more commonly held in middle-class context than in working-class context. So at the institutional level, what's going on? This is what's happening. People have different social networks depending on their social class context. At the institutional level, there's so many differences. I talked already about people are working jobs which have less choice and control. For example, many people come um, with, uh, who don't go to college go to the military. The military teaches people to fit in, to observe hierarchy, to follow traditions, or you don't make it. Um, people in working class contexts tend to be more religious in the United States. Religious organizations are stressing accepting doc- doctrine, coping with ad- adversity, just hanging tough, coping with it, following ritual, contributing to the community. There's lots, many, many factors that are creating these differences, fostering these differences, scaffolding these differences, the psychological differences um, at the individual level. Now, I want to give you one example of an institutional difference, and that's an institutional difference at the university, and talk about some work we've done trying to point out this, uh, the way the university, as Carolyn was saying, tends to foster um, independence. Uh, Unwittingly is, I think, what we found in our case. Middle-class cultures tend to um, emphasize, particularly universities, they tend to emphasize independence. Working-class cultures, including those of many first-gen students, first-gen being the name for uh, students who are the first in their family to go to college. Everybody else has not gone to college. Those contexts tend to emphasize interdependence. These first-gen students that are being recruited at all of our universities now meet a world that's not set up for them and has not thought about the way it's not set up for them. I mean, for example, this is um, Stanford University. You know, many people would uh, regard it as a highly functional organization. It has a huge endowment, world-class faculty, amazing students, beautiful grounds, state-of-the-art facilities, top-ranked sports teams, everything a university could possibly want, you would think, except it's a highly dysfunctional organization when it comes to students from first-gen context, and increasingly, those are students. We have 25% of the students that come from these contexts, and in fact, what what we have seen as uh, universities throughout the U.S. are seeing, we have um, uh, 18% of Stanford students. Actually, this year, we have closer to 25%. um, We've made an effort to recruit. Um, 30% of all U.S. um, freshmen are first-gen students. The data across universities show that students interact less with professors, first-gen students. They make fewer friends. They get lower grades. They drop out at higher rates. This is true even though first-gen students, especially at the elite selective universities, are only uh, admitted to the university if they have the grades and scores. So this is not a problem of, of lower ability in any way whatsoever or lower, less training. Students are prepared. Something happens during that first year, those first year, two years of, of the university. And it was very clear to us and led us to believe, you know, why don't they function? Why aren't the universities functioning well for first-gen students? And the answer we came to is that universities are schools for independence. And we actually did a survey of the 75 top-tier uh, 
ranked universities in the United States, we found in through a variety of um, assessments that more than 70% of them characterize their university as independent, and they say that's what a university should be. Many fewer talk about universities as being places for both or even interdependent. And when you look at the materials that are part of them that we interact with daily on the Stanford campus, you see this. So for example, this is the letter that is sent to students when they're accepted at Stanford. For all the times you stayed up late to get it right, practiced, rehearsed, and gave it your all, took a risk instead of following the easy path, we applaud you. We look forward to the unique and extraordinary contribution we know you will make to the community. This very American, but still, even for American, it's a little over the top. I mean, if you, come, if you come from a family where everybody in your family's gone to college for a couple of generations, yeah, go come and be a mover and shaker. If you come from a family where you're the first person to go to college, it would be useful if the university said, come in, here's some majors or some courses you might want to take, here's the path you might follow, here's the way that you could succeed here. I mean, it would, be, it would be a simple and an obvious thing to do. But instead, we tell students, you have a choice of 120 different combinations of majors. You know, we're, we're telling them that don't expect your advisor to be a roadmap. Your advisor is a compass that points to true north. You know, if you're the first person in your family to go to college, you want a roadmap, and nothing's wrong with a roadmap that tells you what to do, at least for the first couple of years. But Stanford's motto is, the wind of freedom blows, and it tells in the materials that Stanford embodies the pioneering spirit of the American West. Here, high-achieving, risk-taking students come together in a culture known for its intellectual, athletic, and artistic vitality. Fine, but once again, what about students who you know, have come from different contexts and, and need some help making the tra uh, transition? When we talk to students, you find that students who come to college, everybody wants to be independent. It's true that the, pe the blue bars, the continuing generation, students whose parents have gone to college, express more of those independent motives than the first gens, but everybody knows that college is a time to go away from your family and be independent. What's more interesting is that when you look at a whole set of other motives, look at the, um, these are a whole set of interdependent motives. So students who are the first in their family to go to college have a whole set of other things they wanted to do at college, which those who come from um, uh, middle class families don't. They want to bring honor to their family, they want to be role models, they show others they can do well, they want to give back to their community, they want to provide better life for their children, they want to help their family after college. The university isn't set up to foster any of those motives at all. It has nothing to do with those motives. And so our question was, you know, can universities work better? And we thought that yes, they could, and that one way to do it would be to use more interdependence throughout the culture cycle. And we thought the best way to do this is to have a series of coordinated multi-level disruptions or interventions or triggers at various levels of the culture cycle, because I told you, you know, we can change these things. I'm just gonna show you one um, in, the, in the interest of time. Um, about various ways to close the, the class gap. And we focused on reflecting interdependence in materials and practice. Because what we found when we talked to people is everybody was sort of amazed that university was a school for independence. I mean, they didn't, they thought, well, yeah, isn't that what college is about and what would be the problem? So we started with a letter that comes from our president, John Hennessy. What you see is that 
all the materials are just dripping with independence. So the letter says, I'm delighted you have decided to attend Stanford and that you think Stanford is the right place for you. For the next few years, you will have many opportunities to explore new ideas and learn from our superb faculty and from your own personal exploration and individual experiences. We took this letter and we tweaked it in an interdependent direction so that John Hennessy, the president, says, I'm delighted you and your family have decided to come to Stanford for the next two, few years together with others in the Stanford community. You can work together. You can learn from your peers. What we are doing is just simply letting students know that they could use their interdependent self here at Stanford. In fact, there was a place for it, and in fact, it would be a good thing to do. And we did this in an experiment um, under the guise of testing materials for the next year's incoming class. We gave people a variety of problems to solve. I'll just show you one uh, uh, type. This was an a word puzzle, and you have to unscramble the words, the letters of one word to make another word. Um, the blue bars are the continuing generation. The red bars are the first generation. What you can see is that when we presented Stanford as a place for independence, we got this typical gap in which the first generation students solve fewer problems. When we presented Stanford as a place that also allows for interdependence, it was a pretty simple intervention, you could see that the gap between the first gens and the continuing generations disappeared. In separate studies, we went on to um, uh, take cortisol response. Cortisol spikes when you're stressed. And what we found is when the you know, Stanford was presented as a place for independence where you chart your own path, you go your own way, you do it by yourself, the first-generation students were indeed stressed. Their cortisol spiked. When we presented it as a place where they could be the self that they were most familiar and practiced with, more interdependence, you didn't see this cortisol spike, and there was no difference at all for the continuing generation students. We presented this to the Stanford administrators. They, they were surprised. They've been very good. They've opened up a diversity and first-generation office. It's an office that fosters activities for students who are the first in their family to go to college. There's funding. There's pairing of graduate students and undergraduates who are first-generation to try to um, deal with many of these um, difficulties. Stanford is not going to give up on being an independent place. It's all about freedom. Its new materials are even dripping with more freedom than before. But <laughs> I was gratified to see that there's a whole double set of pages that talks about people. There's even some people in groups here. It talks about collaboration. It talks about community. So some part of our message got through. Okay, now I'm going to quickly go through um, in the next uh, five minutes, and then I'll stop. I want to talk about the uh, different clash between whites and people of color which is another clash um, in which people of uh, color tend to have more elaborated interdependent ways of being along with their independent ways. Let me just give you a, uh, another quiz. I want you to describe yourself in five words or phrases. Okay, just think about it. Five words, what comes to your mind? Okay, that's enough time because we're running out of time. Let me see a show of hands of those people who among their top five things mentioned their race or their ethnicity. Raise your hand. Among the top five things you would say yourself mentioned your race or ethnicity. Just a few of you, those are who are still um, raising your hands with me. This is a surefire exercise, it, especially in classrooms that are, where there are mostly um, white students. Um, people who are in the majority group um, 
they have the privilege of never thinking about their race or ethnicity. It doesn't come up. If I give them 20 minutes to think about it, maybe it'll come up. If I just give them a first few minutes to think about their race or ethnicity, it almost never comes up. If you're a person of color, it almost always comes up. And it, it really helps, uh, a demonstration that really helps make this point that many whites believe that race no longer matters. Many blacks, Latinos, Native Americans, Asian, to use the groups that are um, uh, most evident in the US. Other people of color believe that race matters every day in every way. And while white culture cycles tend to focus mostly on independence, black, Latino, Asian culture cycles also focus on a lot of interdependence. Interdependence is also there as well. And if we look through the culture cycle to try and see why that is, at the interaction level, there are many, many studies, um, US-centered uh, studies, that show that white parents, for the most part, never talk to their children about race. It's as if race isn't, uh, uh, white is not a race. They, white parents tend to think they're doing the right thing. They promote what they call color blindness. Um, color blindness can sound um, really like a good idea, but it can be extremely dangerous. First, it leads many white people to believe that they don't have a race or ethnicity. And instead, they believe that they are the neutral or the natural human being still. Um, you know, you can remember when, when this was the color of Band-Aids and uh, the only color of Band-Aids. And maybe some of you even remember when flesh, the flesh-colored crayon was, was that color. Um, that's changed now in the U.S. But, you know, this idea that, that white is the, is the neutral, is the natural, is still pervasive throughout the, the culture cycle. Um, there's an American comedian, Stephen Colbert, who says it best. He's on late night TV. He was. He says, I don't see race. I've evolved beyond that. I just pretend everybody is white and, hey, it's all good. This is kind of the way that the American colorblindness um, works. People think they're doing the right thing. They just... Um, act as if it's a white world, and then they want congratulations for that. At the institutional level, of course, there's differences but between um, uh, people of color and, and, and whites is extremely, extremely evident every place, um, every place you turn. When you are in the minority group, when you're a person of color in the U.S., you're in the numerical majority, it's very clear that your fate is interdependent with those who are in positions of power. Your interdependence with others is fostered every day in every way. It often shows up in all sorts of institutionalized racism. You probably know all of these things. Resumes with black names get 50% fewer callbacks than identical resumes with white-sounding names. Fewer black and Latino students with high scores are tracked into advanced classes. These are the classes that prepare you for college than is true for whites. Blacks are less likely to receive clot-busting drugs than whites, and if you are about to have a heart attack, you want a clot-busting drug. Um, blacks and Latinos, of course, receive harsher jail sentences. There's widespread bias in policing that's been very evident in the American front in, in the last year. The recent study shows that um, on Facebook, um, if you're, um, or on Craigslist, if you're shown, if, you sh if a product is displayed in a black hand as opposed to in a white hand, like ring or something small that you would hold in your hand, there are fewer people that are interested in buying the product that's been in, shown in the black hand than in the white hand. You know, what to do about that? How, what kinds of things can we do in the culture cycle to 
intervene to make a difference, building on this idea that it is possible to make a difference. I only have time to talk about one of them. I just want to show you a study about the importance of representing people often and positively and representing them in the materials that are part of uh, the university. And so we know from um, plenty of work uh, in social psychology now that the first thing we need to do is remove stereotype threat from our environments. People do very poorly. Um, when they're performing under stereotype threat, when they're seen through the lens of a stereotype is limiting of people's performance and what they can do. On the other side of that, besides removing the negative, it's very important to also introduce positive representations that allow people to see themselves in, in the setting. So one study that was done um, uh, by a um, uh, former... Uh, doctoral student Tiffany Brannon, who's now a professor at UCLA. Um, she did a study in which she told students about two different classes that they would have an opportunity to, to take, and they read through the materials online, very nice um, set of materials she prepared. One was on a cor uh, course about um, African-American um, cultural context. It was a course that would um, talk about the culture and history of African-American um, context, and it would focus on architecture and food and music and philosophy. Another one was on um, mainstream American cultural context and would focus on um, mainstream uh, uh, practices and ideas. And in the course of reading through and learning what they would um, have an opportunity to be exposed to in these two classes, there were images like this that were exposed. So you could see that in the African-American cultural context, a set of positive representations that um, included you know, um, uh, the references to Black History Month, to Alice Walker, the color of purple, um, BET, which is the Black Entertainment um, Network in the US, trying to um, make it clear that Stanford University is offering a course on African-American history and culture not only does it show positive representations, it signals that the university thinks that this is something positive that should be included in its curriculum. So there were two sets of um, students, uh, African-American students. Some read about the mainstream course, some read in, about the African-American um, course. Following this, they were given a series of problems to solve. This is data from African-American students. And what you can see is that those students who um, read about the possibility of a course on African-American history and culture performed better than those who read about the typical mainstream history course. Uh, this is a verbal problem-solving task. Here was a performance on a um, math task. They did um, decidedly better on the, on the math task, test. And then here was um, a five... Oh, sorry about that. This is... Um, a creativity problem-solving task, and over here are the, is the um, on the right is the performance for the African American students, and this is the performance for the mainstream, the white students. And what you can see in this study didn't make any difference to the white students whether they read about the course on African American history or um, your current American history, but to the African American students, it made a huge difference for them. They felt, felt included in the university. They were included in the materials, in the, in the curriculum. Um, very strong results that we've um, replicated multiple, multiple times near now. It was a, um, a, a simple intervention. So at that point, I'm going to um, stop.
because there's a, um, a lot we want to talk about. But I want to say that how to thrive in the multicultural world. Um, in case of clash, and I think these clashes are increasingly common, I would suggest that we shouldn't assume, first of all, that the people we're dealing with, the groups we're dealing with, are bad, corrupt, immoral, or deficient. I think we should assume a step, instead, at least as a, a initial default, that what we are experiencing is a culture clash. And then I would say, given where we've been talking about today, the, the, the um, uh, an important thing to do would be to try to apply much more interdependence throughout the, throughout the culture cycle. There would, of course, be a time in which if we are talking from a more interdependent perspective, I would suggest that um, applying more independence might be the answer. But given how we've been talking today, that would be um, my answer to how to thrive in the multicultural world as a start is to pay attention to interdependence and to pay attention to um, the culture cycle, which either fosters interdependence or doesn't. And so I want to th um, thank you. And here's the name of some of the many collaborators that have um, been part of this work. Thank you. Thank you uh, very much, Hazel, um, for that uh, really fascinating uh, talk. Uh, we're going to move straight on to um, our discussants, and uh, in the interest of time, we could take you one after each other, if that is okay, and then allow uh, Hazel um, to comment. Um, hopefully, there might be uh, a little bit of time for um, one or two questions uh, from the floor, but we do need to uh, finish... Um, at 8 o'clock. Um, so, Chandran, if you'd like to um, kick off, sure, well, first, like to come down and <coughs> with us. Well, first, thank you very much for inviting me to, to be here, and thank you very much, yeah. Hazel, for a fascinating uh, discussion. Um, so what I want to do is two things, really. Very quickly, um, offer one anecdote which may speak to some of the themes um, in your um, book and in your lecture, and then raise um, a kind of problem or puzzle which uh, uh, came to mind. The, the anecdote is, well, it's more than an anecdote, it's an, an account of uh, an Indonesian feminist um, of the 19th century who's probably well-known to a lot of Asian people, which is uh, a woman called Kartini. I don't know how many people know, know the name. Uh, she was an interesting figure because at the age of about 15, uh, she, she lived in Java as the daughter of, uh, uh, of a Javanese aristocrat uh, who was also um, a, um, uh, an official in the colonial administration, uh, Indonesia, as it was later to become under the Dutch. She, she wrote to uh, a Dutch feminist magazine in, uh, in, in Holland, became pen pals, and she wrote quite a lot just in the way of letters, in all of her letters, what she expressed mostly was the desire to get away from Java. She found the communal values um, confining and um, just almost insulting. She hated the, um, the, the whole practice of having to bow and scrape if you were the wrong um, you know, um, uh, member of the family or if you were of a lower uh, standing and so on. And she said very explicitly, you know, I long for the free air of Europe. She tried very hard and succeeded in getting a scholarship. Her Dutch friends were very helpful. But in the end, um, and she also hated 
the practice of polygamy. She hated arranged marriage. She was against all of the things that were part of Adat or custom. But then at the age of 24, just after she got the scholarship, um, she decided she would give it up and she would marry the regent of Rumbang, become his principal wife and also his fourth wife, uh, a marriage arranged by her parents. And she, she wrote and said, you know, I just can't leave because my father is ill and I owe them everything and they mean so much to me. And uh, her, her correspondent in Holland was aghast. She thought there must have been coercion. Uh, she thought this was a terrible thing. She must have been forced, even though this was a very independent person who had written hundreds and hundreds of letters explaining why she felt she was an autonomous person. But then she made this decision to stay uh, with her family because that was more important. Uh, Stella Zihandala could not comprehend this. I gave this paper in Stanford, actually, in 2005 at a, at a conference. And when I made this presentation, at the end of it, we discussed it as an issue of whether or not Cartini was free. And all of my uh, interlocutors said, well, no, she was not free because, you know, she was, there was clearly something psychologically wrong. And, and I tried to say, no, no, there's nothing psychologically wrong. If you read all the letters, you can see she's independent. But the response was, no, she couldn't be independent because if she was independent, she wouldn't have made that choice. That's so this is, story. I thought, it's a, a, story. a story you would, you would uh, Thanks. enjoy. Thanks. But, but here's, here's the, the kind of puzzle that comes to my mind, given um, the other thrust of your um, paper about how to cope with being um, in a multicultural world. And I'm very interested in the whole issue of immigration, and one of the big topics in that is the question of whether or not immigrants should be assimilated. And there's a very strong push in some parts of the argument against assimilation um, because assimilation means preventing people from realizing uh, and enjoying and being comfortable with the own, their own identities, the, the identities they've come with, which are often communal identities that they're coming to, to Western countries. But then the problem is that which group do you try to be interdependent with. Yeah. Because if you want to be interdependent with the wider society, what you've got to do is learn to be independent. Mm -hmm. But if you don't want to be independent and decide that you're going to be interdependent with your own community, well, you can't be interdependent with the community outside you. And this seems to me at the heart of the kind of problem that um, a lot of immigration policy faces and a lot of thinking about multiculturalism faces. And this is something I'd really like you to, to comment on because... How do you resolve this problem in your attempt to try to cope with being in a multicultural world? Right. Thank you. That's a, a wonderful anecdote and an excellent question. It is exactly um, <clears throat> what, what motivates my, my interest because we've got to attack this problem. And I guess I'm, I'm only as far as saying that drawing out and calling attention to these two powerful ways of being and calling attention to the clash in our society is a start. I think um, uh, allowing people, helping people to become aware that their their way of being is not the way that's the mainstream way of the world that they're entering and that in order to have a successful integration here, they, there will have to be some settings in which they operate off of a more independent self. And there may be some more public settings, some work settings, some other official institutional settings where that will be part of the bargain, that they will have to say, okay, I'm going to choose to 
operate like a like an independent self in in this case as 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 part of the arrangement of of coming now i mean that's very that's very idealistic and you can immediately see how that that might not work but but allowing that some you, you could still hold on to some important aspects of yourself you don't have to give up your whole self your there's a lot of value attached to your more communal ways of being it should be possible to live this way but then also to have this other sort of self that you could use a more independent self when the situation requires it is i think that just has um allows uh, some some sense of freedom that you don't have to completely um, assimilate and and become another way in order to fit in now you know exactly how that would happen the the devil is in the is in the details i I see that but um, I think it is possible to have more than one self per customer and i and I think you know the the trouble with us is we've been so tied to this Western view of um, uh, an authentic, integrated, consistent self that the idea that we would have um, multiple selves that we might tack back and forth between is seen as sort of hypocritical or you know it's a it's a problem right off, and I think you know human consciousness could evolve in, in that way. That's my initial answer. But it's a wonderful question and is the question. All right. <laughs> um, so again, kind of two-pronged. Um, I first just wanted to commend you, Hazel. Um, I remember coming across your work as a master's student here 10 years ago and, and something that seems so new, this notion of, well, perhaps all of what we assumed um, about you know, Western psychology and the notion of the individual doesn't generalize beyond you know, the American uh, student, college students in which it had been studied. Now it's, it's just so obvious in retrospect, but really is kind of mind-blowing when you come across it at first. And then later as a graduate student, as I mentioned, being one of the first people to study social class, um, very much appreciated. And in particular, um, <clears throat> you know, my own work looks at lower um, or trying to understand, you know, perceive lower sense of agency or sense of personal power control um, held by those in lower socioeconomic groups. And what I love about your work with Nicole Townsend is that it makes the point that it's not necessarily that uh, people growing up in working class contexts have you know lesser sense of agency. It's a different sense of agency. It's an interdependent sense of agency. And in fact, what's coming across as a lower sense of agency is either because you're asking them with questions that are structured from uh, assuming this very independent sense of agency, or that you're placing them in contexts that are expecting that kind of independent um, self-expression as a means of, of achievement. So we need to think about changing the context and think about changing the way we ask about the questions. That's that's also, I think, a really revolutionary insight. Um, now later, um, getting this chance to read your book and seeing how you've weaved all this together into a theory um, of, of multiple levels also really excites me. Two points of view at, from uh, two perspectives. One is your, your recommendation that we all think about the independent and interdependent parts within each of us and, and try to be more malleable and flexible in applying them in order to arrive at this more kind of cooperative and fair world. But also because it's a multi-level theory, right? So it's looking at individuals, um, interactions, institutions, and ideas. And multi-level theories are very rare in psychology. 
there is another one, which you might not be surprised that I, that I bring up, which is social dominance theory. Um, and, I, and I'm excited to, to think about the similarities between the theories because uh, what Jim Sedanis and Felicia Prado point out is that it's at the individual level and also at the group level and also at the institutional level and the ideological level that we see the dynamics of intergroup inequality play out. And in particular, that we see multiple forces maintaining the hegemony of, of powerful groups over less powerful groups. So that leaves me then with a question um, for your recommendation, um, which is how can, <clears throat> what kind of hope is there for individual level attempts to push back at our culture cycles um, when we kind of recognize that some groups have far more power and resources to be able to support the status quo, um, right, when, they're, when, when there are a lot of powerful interests vested in keeping things just as they are, um, so, so individuals might come together in groups, um, but again, those groups are challenging a symbolic order that's not just maintained by a cultural apparatus, by a political and economic apparatus. You know, the institutions might be willing to construe themselves differently, but when it comes to actually giving up power and resources, um, I, I'm wondering about how optimistic your, <laughs> your recommendations are. Yeah, well, the, the, the two of you together have asked the two questions. I mean, this is um, <coughs> what really can happen um, once you recognize the, 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 the power differential there. And um, I, I think um, how this will happen, it, it, it has to happen throughout the culture cycle. I think most important is that if you can have leadership at the, at the highest levels who um, understand that... Uh, the people with the most power have to lead. The people with the independence ha have to lead. They have to start to operate with more interdependence. Now, you might say, well, you know, look at the success of someone like Obama. Very limited success, I think, is something that people are, are saying now. But maybe we have to take the, the longer perspective on this. We have to um, have people in the, in the most powerful um, situations that recognize that it's on them to um, arrange situations so that the power is shared. I mean, I know it's the basic axiom from political science that people never give up power, um, but I think that we have to um, we have to have hope for that, have to try to arrange that, as well as individuals coming together interdependently, as you say, in groups to, to try to um, uh, uh, ch challenge that, that power in, in ways that they can. My thought is that there will be a lot of power in interdependence. It's not, interdependence is not only just a sense of, of, it's not just a sense of low power. I mean, there are many other positive features that can come from that interdependence that as our society grows more diverse, per hopefully we'll begin to see some of the positive consequences of interdependence. As we were talking earlier today with um, people, almost all of the big problems that we have to solve in our world, take for example, uh, climate change is going to require interdependence. I mean, people who have practice and familiarity with interdependence and the, and the good that can come from it, perhaps there'll be a, a broader recognition that we've left something on the table, a lot on, our, on the table in this push towards um, individual freedom. I mean, I, I live in the part of the world, the Silicon Valley, where there's, this has been taken to such an extreme that m many people believe there's no need for any kind 
kind of organization, any sort of institution, you know, individuals on their own can, can do it without the interventions of government. And I think we're starting to see a complete um, fraying of a, of, a, of a society, of a safety net that will hold us together. So my, my sense is that there'll be a turn more towards some type of um, recognition of the positive consequences of, that can be there for some um, interdependence, but it's going to take it's going to take people at all of those levels to um, pointing that out. Individuals themselves, you know, I think that's what I share with people at LSE. In this perspective, is a, is a, the idea that the psychological is societal, is cultural. You it, just trying to give individuals a different mindset is probably a doomed effort. Um, thanks um, very much um, for extending the discussion uh, with your questions. Um, I'm trying to stop myself from asking a question. Um, in case there are um, some from the floor, um, I can see one, two, three, four hands. So we have just a few minutes. So we'll just take three. Um, the gentleman at the back, there was a lady in the middle... Here, did you have a question? Yes, and then the gentleman behind you. We'll just take, uh, or perhaps we'll try and squeeze um, just four in if we can. Um, Why don't we ask the questions and then so everybody has a chance to ask? Yeah, if you could, if we can have them all um, and try to keep them brief, please. Thank you. Uh, Thank you. It's it's a very uh, the culture is a very complex uh, concept, undoubtedly, and there's a lot of play for speculation in this. You talked of the interdependence, or rather the, uh, the conformist nature of Eastern culture and the uh, non-conformist nature of the Western cultures. And the problem of what you call the cultural uh, uh, coming together. Uh, what I want you to ask, I, mean, I know it might be something that you may not like to comment on, but what is the role of religion? Religion is also part of culture. What, plays, what role does that play in in coming together of, uh, of uh, uh, various communities, various cultures. Thank you. And there was a question uh, right at, right at Long, if we can just pass. If you, want, if you want to go ahead, actually. Hi, just a quite technical question, actually. Um, there's some research that suggests that if you study cultural artifacts, you can find larger effect sizes that, that they better predict whether it's an independent or interdependent um, cultural context um, than self-reports. Do you think we could use something like the, the vignettes that you, you had earlier to um, instead of self-report scales? Question behind? Yep. Um, <clears throat> for removing stereotype thread, while it would be great if somebody else or the system can change or prime kind of positive representations at the institutional level or even at the ideas level or at the interactions level. But if as an individual, without the power to change these kind of social contexts, what could we do ourselves to kind of make ourselves more independent or interdependent according to the context we're in? Uh, are we best just priming our, ourselves or... Are there better ways to make ourselves more independent or interdependent? Hi. Um, 
as an interdependent self, I would um, just like to know, because me and my friend were, I'm from Yemen, by the way, and we were thinking of going back and starting a firm and trying to empower women and make them more independent, because in Yemen, women are not equal to men at all. So we were just thinking, there was an issue that came up saying that um, women will not accept our help because um, maybe they're afraid of the community or society they live in. So I would just want your advice on how to approach these women in order for them to feel more independent because it it will benefit them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Those are all terrific questions. I just go backwards. The ones that I, um, I think if you are working in a cultural context in which you think interdependence is the more foundational schema for, for behavior and thought, it's best to start there and try to leverage that interdependence toward a type of independence. So making it you know, clear, using interdependence, your connections and relationships to bring together people that you think would try, would want to perhaps, you know, um, be more entrepreneurial and do these things and then work in, in that direction. What doesn't work is the sort of approach that's true of most um, economic aid and throughout the world is where, you know, West just starts with here, do it this way sort of thing. This is a better way. I mean, you have to always start with an appreciation of what's um, good and of value, what's good, true, beautiful, and efficient in that culture and try to build on that to extend it. I think otherwise all bets are off. And just the understanding that there's more than one right answer to what's good, true, beautiful, and efficient in the world, but they all have some, you know, have some positive upsides. They all have some downsides. I think that's very liberating to people, that there's more than one right way. Um, On your question about what the individual can do, I actually do think as a psychologist that a lot of self-priming can can work, you know, affirming yourself, reminding yourself what's good about you know, your, your foundational, your heritage cultures, what you value, what you believe before you have to go out and take on some of these challenges where people are not aware of your world or, in fact, sometimes systematically ignoring it or undermining it. So, so you can do that. It's also um, with, with groups of people, you can think about ways to try to talk to the the system, the institution that you're part of about bringing these ideas out. What I find is mostly people haven't thought about it, that they're not really resistant to opening it up. They're, they're, they haven't thought about it. They're, they're not aware. In the West, we're kind of um, resistant to the idea that our worlds are cultural products. And so people just think they're doing a neutral thing. They think education is just a neutral thing. So I think trying to, um, uh, you know, speaking truth to power, as we say, there's something to be said in that. But short of that, um, focus, you know, doing yourself before you have to do a challenge or a test or something, it can definitely work. Um, And then you asked me, Alina, about um, uh, the difference between um, larger sex effect size with cultural products. I think we need always multi-methods on all of these things. So, I mean, something at the individual level, yes, we do that often first, but analysis of cultural products, institutional practices, and policies, I think is an excellent 
um, way to um, point out the, the, the cultural differences. And it shows people the way culture is uh, inscribed in our world. So that's a really good point. And then finally, the point about religion. Religions differ dramatically in whether they foster a more independent or interdependent view. And of course, if you want to understand about the origins of the independent view, you have to understand Christianity and the Reformation, um, the idea that the individual didn't need the intercession of of popes or priests or but could have an individual relationship with with a god and this god could keep his eye or her eye on you this was a you know a powerful idea that fostered the whole concept of of the individual and so in christianity um, especially in certain forms of christianity we see this idea mainline um, protestant christianity that individualism is continually fostered by religion and much less so in Judaism or Catholicism or in Islam. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much for your questions. I'm sorry we couldn't um, get through them all. It's been very nice to see our students, former students, uh, members of the public here. Thank you for coming. Thanks again, uh, Hazel and our discussants.